Blog Talk Radio. And we're live from San Diego, California on December the 7th, 2011. Welcome to ACO Watch, a midweek review. I'm your host, Greg Masters. Today we have another installment from an integration innovator with deep roots in both the group medical practice as well as community-based health plan operations. My special guest is H. Eugene Lindsay, MD, President and CEO of Atrius Health, an alliance of six leading medical groups who have joined together via a nonprofit management company to transform the delivery of healthcare in eastern and central Massachusetts. Building on a long-term presence and established history as a provider of high-quality and preventive care, Dedman Medical Associates, Granite Medical Group, Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates, Reliant Medical Group, South Southboro Medical Group, and South Shore Medical Center are working together to create a new and productive approach to patients' health, coordinated by primary care physicians and supported by a multidisciplinary care management team. Dr. Lindsay has been the president and CEO of Atrius Health, as well as its largest affiliate, Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates, since February of 2008. Previously, he was chairman of the board of Directors for Atrius Health and Chairman of the Board of Directors for Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates. Dr. Lindsay received his medical degree from Harvard Medical School and is a sought-after speaker on the healthcare topics of payment reform, accountable care organizations, practice innovation, quality, and efficiency. Welcome, Dr. Lindsay. Well, thank you very much, Greg. I'm glad to be here. I'm so glad you could join me today. So I'm excited about our opportunity to chat. Um, why don't you give us some history and insight into Atrius Health? Who are you? Why have you pooled your resources and to what end? Walk us through a summary timeline of the, ent- the entity's genesis. Sure. Uh, the The genesis of the organization goes back about seven years ago, when many of the uh, groups that had previously participated in the old Harvard Community Health Plan uh, came together to try to create a new physician-led alliance. In 1997, I was part of a group of physicians that took um, Harvard Vanguard, uh, which had basically been the old staff model HMO part of Harvard Community Health Plan, out of Harvard Vanguard to establish a new 501c3. And um, by the um, by 2002, it became clear that the sorts of objectives that we were trying to um, meet would um, actually be um, uh, more uh, proximate to us if we could uh, join forces with some of our former colleagues. And so, we invited the Dedham Medical Group, uh, South Shore Medical Center, Southboro. Uh, into a conversation with us at that time uh, about creating a, a supergroup which would uh, share an IT platform where on Epic Systems, um, actually share contracting, share quality programs, 
and coordinate our care in such a fashion that the public could come to any of us and expect the same high level of quality uh, and the same focus on um, uh, the triple aim and the six domains of quality, which are core to the way we um, conceptualize our role. You know, for those who don't remember, uh, the triple aim is essentially better care for the individual, better care for the community at affordable price. And the uh, six domains of quality from my uh, structure, um, I like to reorder uh, them to be patient-centered, safe, delivered in a timely fashion, efficient, effective, and the most difficult of all, delivered with, equi with equity. I think that you know, clearly the conversation that we've been involved with as a nation is how do we extend care equitably to the 15% of the population that doesn't have it in such a fashion as to not undermine what the other 85% of the population enjoys and, in fact, hopefully to improve it for everyone. So that's, you know, sort of a wordy statement of what we've been about, and we've been engaged with all of our vitality, energy, and, and resources to trying to achieve something that is close to what I've just described here in Massachusetts. We feel like we're sort of a learning lab for the rest of the country since we've had something that approximates um, uh, universal coverage since 2006. Absolutely. Let me ask you in this uh, early uh, stage conversations, were these primarily physician-led conversations or was there an institutional voice somewhere in the background? No, Harvard Vanguard had uh, become uh, uh, its own 501c3 specifically as a physician-led organization. So uh, its board uh, did include community members, uh, but um, the CEO, uh, you know, was hired by a board that was primarily uh, aligned with the thinking of the physicians. I was the chairman of the board. Uh, the uh, strategy of the organization was uh, negotiated between management and the physician-led board, uh, and uh, we explicitly defined for ourselves uh, the purpose of achieving a mission that's pretty much what I just described uh, in terms of, of our, our role of providing better care for individuals and the community and reducing the cost of care. So um, that... And each of the groups that we approached uh, were physician-led uh, organizations. Actually, except for Harvard Vanguard, they were all PCs and had to convert to being a 501c3 nonprofit organization, which actually wasn't that difficult since everybody was having um, uh, financial difficulties at the time. And um, uh, I guess in the parlance of, of um, accountants, we're not going concerns. Uh, so so we, we, we came together and began to sync together. Uh, we, we had one huge asset for us, and that is that we had in our state at that time the, early, uh, the earliest attempts at measuring quality and announcing it to the community. So there was an organization that had been negotiated that everyone submitted their quality data to, and, and lo and behold, ours came out to be the best. Um, and and I think that was because we had our, our roots in a healthcare system that um, had been designed um, initially. The Harvard Community Health Plan was the child of uh, Robert Ebert, who was the dean of the Harvard Medical School back in the 60s when I was a student there. 
And uh, so when Harvard Community Health Plan was launched in 1969, it was literally launched as an experimental teaching uh, practice, uh, checking out or, or discovering the benefits of, of um, prepayment, which was the parlance of the time, over fee-for-service practice, checking out the benefit of um, preventative care over sick care, recognizing that the focus of care in the hospital was actually uh, not conducive to preserving care, but that it actually should be focused in the ambulatory environment. You know, the innovations of the late 60s and early 70s included the introduction of nurse practitioners, the uh, the use of the telephone um, as a way of contacting your physician and getting a reasonable um uh, advice uh, without having to come to the office, uh, and the uh, institutions, the protocols of, of um, preventative testing, all of those were pretty creative at that time. We sort of think of them as sort of run-of-the-mill now. As the, um, as the 70s and 80s evolved, you know, they, we became um, a, a federally licensed HMO, became self-insured, um, developed the staff model uh, to a population of about 400,000 at its peak, um, and then uh, became more complex when they began to add uh, established medical groups in the community to the core of the staff model. So there was a long evolution of managed care thinking uh, that occurred uh, in the Harvard Community Health Plan and since we're the legacy organizations of, of that entity, we were not starting from scratch in 2002. We, we had, um, you know, a critical mass of people who understood what it meant to uh, manage health care on a budget and uh, who uh, had a long experience with quality. I would point out that, that Don Berwick was our first vice president of quality and safety uh, back in the early 80s. Uh, that Glenn Steele, who now runs um, Geisinger, was uh, an oncologic surgeon at uh, Harvard Community Health Plan uh, between the late 70s and the late 80s. Uh, that Glenn uh, Hackbarth, who's the current chairman of MedPAC, was the first CEO of Harvard Vanguard. So, so we've really had the blessing of having some of the of the leading thinkers in healthcare be part of our practice. Uh, over the last 30 years, and um, although they've all gone on to other, uh, you know, larger national uh, roles and responsibilities, um, the 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 environment and the the um, culture that Dr. Ebert created and 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 continued to foster until he passed away in the mid 90s um, was one that that. Um, has always valued and had slightly a different approach to the healthcare problems uh, than the large, you know, bulk of practice. So basically, that's too wordy. Way too, and I apologize to the listeners, but it's 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 a history that I'm very proud of, and I think um, something that we go back to on a regular basis to rediscover things that other people knew a long time ago. No, it's actually fascinating history, and. Uh, I just want to call attention to the fact that 1969 was um, uh, four years before the HMO Act was passed. Yes, right. So, 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 kudos on forward thinking at that time. 
and and it and it so much depends on on local DNA and who you have in the conversation. But but thanks for that context. So th- this leads me forward to to my next question, and it's um, actually a uh, shout out to David Harlow at the health at Health Blog. Uh, I read um, uh, the interview that he conducted with you and published um, on the fifth. Uh, and the question is uh, deja vu all over again. So, so my question to you is, you know, is it deja vu all over again, or is something different this time? Give us your take. Well, it's very reminiscent, and in fact, I frequently, when I'm speaking, put up a slide that is a quote from Dr. Ebert from a speech he gave <clears throat> at Simmons College in 1967, where he said that the problems of health care, you know, really couldn't be dissolved by. Um, throwing more money at it or more material or more people, but actually what we needed was a more efficient operating system. Uh, you could read that in today's New York Times. Um, probably could find it someplace in today's New York Times because um, I think that continuous improvement um, is definitely, uh, you know, something that um, you can trace back uh, for, for many decades. The uh, So, that part is deja vu. I mean, we are rediscovering uh, the benefit of um, of examining what we do. You know, Socrates said in in uh, his uh, statement before his uh, the the people who were judging him uh, that an unexamined life was not worth living. I, I think an unexamined industry or an unexamined profession. Um, you know, is in trouble too. We should be constantly asking ourselves whether or not we're achieving our objectives. Uh, you know, a, a local thinker in organizational development here in Boston, uh, Chris Argers, uh had this concept of double loop learning. And and in, in, in that concept, you know, one of the questions that smart people always fail to do is to ask themselves what part of the problem are they? And so as an organization, when we say, okay, Everybody's generally agreed that healthcare is a mess. By the way, what part of that mess are we? Uh, I think <laughs> an organization like ours can come up with a pretty interesting list of things that we do either uh, out of habit, convenience, for some financial focus, or whatever that um, could be reviewed and reevaluated and perhaps redirected. So, going back to your original question, what's different now? is that I think we actually have better language about the challenges of healthcare transformation. We, we, we are thinking about the difficulties of adaptive change, about the economics. Um, we are accepting Paul Batalden's uh, statement that the system perfectly produces the results it's designed to produce. And so the, the, what could you expect other than fragmented expensive care? Uh, from the economic system that we currently use to deliver health care. We need to do some real reconsideration of um, uh, how the system flows, how it operates. And so that's an insight that we have now. Uh, and, you know, 40 years of experience with managed care, I like to think about the moment as perhaps, and I know it's a dirty word, do you say HMO or managed care? But in essence, it's it's thoughtful the, the the thoughtful return to the concept of um, practicing medicine from the point of view of considering its outcomes, considering its cost, uh, considering its quality, 
Maybe capitation 2.0 isn't a bad uh, idea. I know capitation is a four-letter word also. But but I think that, that we have tools now uh, to look at populations, to predict disease, to um, organize care that we didn't have in Dr. Ebert's day. I mean, he was, you know, very fledgling in the thinking. Uh, and the other people that were, I mean, he stole a lot of what he thought from Kaiser. He had been aware of Kaiser uh, from the moment it moved into Ohio because before he came to Boston, he had been at Case Western Reserve uh, and was impressed with some of the benefits of uh, that approach to healthcare and took their thinking and added his own to it. So the difference now is that we have experience, we can learn from what we did wrong. We have tools to better look at um, the populations that we're attempting to help. Uh, we have um, a, a lot better uh, skill uh, in terms of um, organizational development, uh, knowing how to um, deal with cultural issues. I mean, it's it's a new world, really, and, and, and I marvel at, at the things that are different now versus what they were when I first started practicing in 75. I really agree with Atul Gawani, and I quote him all the time when he said, you know, 40, 50 years ago, the issue was we didn't know much. We were, pardon the expression, ignorant. Uh, now the problem is we know a lot of things, but we're pretty inept at organizing them. And so we've, we've moved from an era of where uh, we didn't have tools to one where we don't know how to use the tools in, in, a, in, a, in an organized and systematic fashion to produce benefit. And I, I think you referenced in our conversation prior to the, to the meeting here the article uh, uh, in the Times uh, today about Don Berwick. And yesterday in our market, and I guess across the country on NPR on Tom Ashbrook's program on point, uh, he was interviewed, and I, he came back again and again uh, to to the reality that there is waste in our system. We now have the tools, this is different, to get that waste out. We in our organization are using lean uh, uh, continuous improvement techniques just like they are at Denver Health and at Virginia Mason, Theta Care. Uh, Geisinger and a variety of other organizations across the country. There's real hope in that, that the application of those tools. So well, a lot. For, those, for those who are not familiar with the, the lean uh, concept, do you, you want to take a few seconds and talk what what does that mean in healthcare? Well, it's it's been a, a journey of discovery to see what it means. You know, some people originally felt like what happens in the exam room is sacred and that lean shouldn't go in the exam room and that lean was great in helping patients get appointments efficiently flow through an office or a hospital. It was great in using it to manage inventory. It was great, you know, to uh, uh, look at processes of finance. But we've actually taken it into the exam room and began to uh, use it to support and improve the way in which the physician performs in the interaction with the patient. But in essence, it's built off of uh, several core concepts. One is that you need to look at quality um, and value from the point of view of the customer. So that if we do something and it doesn't bring benefit to patients, then in fact, why are we doing it? 
and if you just look at all that we do, you discover immediately that there's much that we do that our average patient doesn't recognize as adding value. Um, perfect example. Uh, we have for years, in a in a way, to essentially protect ourselves from the controversy of um, uh, immunizations. Uh, had people sign consent forms. They're not required by law for that activity. You certainly do need to have a conversation uh, with a parent or with a patient about the utility of the consent form and, and be totally clear with them uh, about what is to happen, And but but it's technically not necessary to file a consent form. It costs us in a system our size probably more than $500,000 a year to document something that adds no value to the patient. Just just the printing of the forms, the staff time to fill them out, the storage of them electronically and um, as hard copy, because once you've done them, you are obligated to hold on to them, and no value. We might as well take $500,000 out in the parking lot and burn it. So that's an example of of of, of, a, of a discovery uh, with lean um, that if you look at at how you approach your work, you begin to see uh, that there are huge pockets of waste that are that are available to be removed. The people who are most aware of them are the people who are closest to the active care. You know, if I have little or no knowledge about efficiency of signing people in for an office appointment and checking their insurance uh, coverage. The people who do that every day in our office know a whole lot more about it than I do. If you ask them to redesign the system to be more efficient, they actually can. And so the role of the organization is to, you know, create the the environment where that process can occur, give them the consultative support to do it because there is a methodology to it, teach them. It's basically, you know, the old concept, you can give somebody fish or you can teach them how to fish. If you give them a fish, you feed them for a day. If you teach them how to fish, they know how that you can feed them for life. Once our, once our employees are taught the methodology, the skill of how to do process improvement to solve the problems that they see and eliminate the waste that becomes obvious to them, it's it's sort of a, a rapidly multiplying process, and and um, you know in his comments yesterday, Don Berwick was talking about the hundreds of millions of dollars that Patty Grabo has saved at uh, Denver Health um, utilizing lean process management. It's real. Oh, okay. Well, thanks for that. And uh, I was uh, going back to this idea of. Step one may be look in the mirror and ask yourself the question, what uh, part of the problem am I? Or uh, are we? There's almost, an, there's almost an assumption that there has to be an awareness that there is a problem. Yes. And if you, and if you talk to some, um, uh, rather than looking at some of the indices of, 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 of why our system is not ranking, you know, as high as it, as one might think for the the dollar investment um um they um will point you know they'll disagree that there's a problem uh so 
you first have to look in the mirror and recognize that there's a problem and then ask yourself, what part am I contributing to it? And, and I love this quote I, I found my way to today after reading uh, Let's Wake Up About ACOs, which is a blog post on Paul F. Levy's blog, Not Running a Hospital, and he attributes it to Michael Dukakis, who said, uh, he said, public policy formulation in the healthcare arena is character no no I'm wrong quote that's a different one here here it is urging the healthcare market to fix itself is a colossal waste of time. Well, that would what be do you a think skeptic. About that? Um, I I I would turn it around and say that it is impossible for the problems that we experience as a community with healthcare to improve healthcare without engaging um, the industry. Uh, and I, I I I feel as a physician and as a healthcare executive, a huge sense of personal responsibility to be part of the solution. I don't think my patients are interested in my economic stability as much as they are in the value that they receive from the care that they get from me and from the organization that I lead. And I still do practice some. Uh, the um, the, the the whole and that's the concept of patient centeredness i th- i think that too much of healthcare has been constructed uh for reasons other than improving the health of individuals and improving the health of the community um sure i mean it's it's a complex industry in many cities and towns uh the largest employer is the local hospital uh in our uh state Healthcare is a major part of the industrial infrastructure. Um, you know, IT uh, has a big presence here, and a lot of healthcare IT is is an economic engine. So it's a it's a very diffuse industry. Uh, but everyone who participates in the industry needs to conceptualize that in the long run, we all have a better position if it's a healthier industry. So so we learned in our organization some five, six years ago that if our patients weren't seeking care because the cost of care was prohibitive for them, they had a problem and we had a problem. And we needed to say, okay, what part of that problem are we? Is there anything that we can do to try to lower the total medical expense uh, so as to... um, make it more available. Let me give you a personal story. The same woman has cut my hair for more than 20 years, and I've sort of vaguely become aware of the fact that she has some medical issues. Uh, So off and on over the last four or five years, we've had a a more and more open conversation when I see her about her experience in the healthcare industry. And so she said to me one day, do you think I need to get an MRI every year? And I said, well, it depends on what your problem is. And she said, well, I, I actually have MS. And I said, wow, you're doing well with it. And she said, yes, I am. I'm, I'm on every medicine that's available. And every year, uh, my neurologist wants me to have another MRI. She said, you know, at first it wasn't a big problem, but now my copay part of that is is, is expensive and in fact, I have to take time off from work, and 
I have to then go back and get the results. The sum total of it, it cost me several hundred dollars to do that, and he never does anything differently. So I said, well, why don't you ask him to talk to you about it? And so she did, and the next time I was back, she said, you know, he said he was only doing it to reassure me. I said, oh, <laughs> all right, do you need it to be reassured? And she said, no, actually, not not at all. Uh, you know, he's been very good. I mean, it's never driven a change of treatment for me. My my treatment changes when, in fact, my symptoms change. So so then later this year, I was in one day, and I said, her name is... is, is um, and it, I, I, it, I guess for confidentiality reasons, I shouldn't even give her first name. But anyway, she, I said, um, I th- I'm interested. What does your health care cost you? Because now we're in a state where there's essentially universal payment. She said, $257.57. I said, wow, that's a lot of money every month. She said, no, 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 that's every week. <laughs> and I said, every week? I do the quick math. That's over $13,000 a year. She's the, you know, providing health care for her whole family. They have rudimentary health care uh, as provided in the in the bill, but the continuing cost to her when you add in all of her medicines is in excess of fifteen thousand dollars a year. And you know, she's working hard. Her husband uh, is self-employed. They have two kids. They're trying to buy a home. Fifteen thousand dollars is a major. Uh, you know, issue for them in the context of being solidly in the middle class. Health care is on a a problem. Great vignette. Sorry, I had to step in, but we are coming down for a hard stop on the live portion of the show. We'll continue in in, uh, the downstream retrieval version in the uh, uh, after hours segment if if you're available. But I want to thank, uh, we only scratched the surface. I want to thank Dr. Gene Lindsay for his uh, amazing for his time today. Please join us next week on another episode of ACO Watch, a midweek review. Bye now. So, Dr. Lindsay, if you can stay with just, uh, just a few more moments uh, rather than do that abrupt termination, I, I, I'd like to maybe draw you in on just a, a few other thoughts, if that, if that sure. works for I'm you. Sorry to be so verbose. No, 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 no. The, you know, I, first of all, I want to give some context on that question with that Michael Dukakis quote, uh, and I want to see if I can connect some dots and whether you would agree with it. Um, the notion that you you asked, you know, the disease to fix itself is kind of like a, a weird question. You know, can 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 a, a problem be solved from the problem? Some would say no. It has to come from a higher power, quote unquote. Um, then you look at the e-patients or the participa- participatory medicine movement, and their sort of mantra is because providers can't do it alone. You know, there's this emerging, you know, informed and engaged patient community. And then thirdly, you represent what I consider to be the best and brightest out there in terms of innovation in healthcare. You know, those people who have been granularly involved in managing healthcare dating back now decades and understand the value proposition, how important physician culture is and why you can't just layer on some structure and all of a sudden poof you have accountable care. You know, it just doesn't work that way. So my 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 sense is, if 
if mainstream medicine, if the consciousness in mainstream medicine was more in line with Atrius Health and, and, and some of the, broad, uh, the more progressive thinkers at the American Medical Group Association, Management Association, and the like, we wouldn't have this problem, and healthcare could probably fix itself from the inside. But I think mainstream medicine doesn't is perhaps more in denial about the nature of the problem. And as they, as they sit there, I and, agree with and, you. And, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. And not just mainstream medicine, healthcare, you know, institutional healthcare. They're 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 just not willing to look and be sober about you know their part in the problem and what do they need to do with a more long term horizon. Right, but uh, but I, 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 I the only place I would differ with you is that it's not an impossibility. I think that if you're trying to create change, you do need to create a reason for change. Uh, and the Affordable Care Act has done that in some very significant ways. Predictably, there's been enormous pushback. If you go back and, and, and look at what happened in the mid-60s with the creation of Medicare, there was enormous pushback. Uh, the, the whole history of the evolution of uh, our healthcare industry is associated with um, change that's introduced uh, in some part by a social discussion, often in the legislature, um, you know, the, 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 the Medicare conversation, probably the best example, but even conversations around things like Hill-Burton and um, in, in the Medicare Part D, you know, that we've recently experienced under President Bush, all had, uh, you know, an origin um, in public policy that then created a need to be uh, an adaptive need uh, within the practice community. Sure, I would love it to be true that we had some spontaneous recognition of uh, a need, and there was a bit of that in what Dr. Ebert described. There was a bit of that, a lot of that actually in the origins of Kaiser. Uh, so, so I do think that if you look at the broad scope of the last half century, that we're in a better position than they, we were when I was a child. Uh, how slowly this is going and whether we'll get there at the right time or, or, you know, what will happen to the rate of change going forward, I think really um, is where you either become quite sour, as I interpreted that statement, or hopeful, as I personally prefer uh, to interpret it. Um, there is... Um, there is a palpable enthusiasm in some places now for adaptive change. The conversation is changing um, slowly, but when Joe Biden leaned over to the president and said whatever he said, plus this is really a big deal, he was right. It was a big deal. Now now we're yeah, renegotiating weird. it, but we're still better off than we were before we went through that process, even though people didn't like it. So this is just sort of this natural reaction, uh, social, if you will, reaction to change. And um, the difference today is we're looking at an economy that's cratering on, on, on the uh, precipice of uh, global instability. And that wasn't right. the case back in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. It was really just restricted to medical inflation and its portion of GMP. Now it's the entire economy. So 
Right. Stakes are a little higher today. Yes. Uh, in our state, for instance, 41 cents of every tax dollar goes to health care. I don't think that describes a situation that's sustainable uh, or desirable. Uh, what are you using to pave the roads with? What are you using to uh, improve the schools with? You know, uh, what's the social structure of the environment going to be like if we continue to put more and more of uh, our tax dollars in, quite frankly, I think everybody's in agreement that we can't produce more tax dollars right now because um, even if we could, there's a reluctance to do that. So the way Atrius Health has looked at revenue is that we're topped out on the revenue side. It is inappropriate and even if it was possible, unlikely uh, that people would want to be offering us more revenue. Our opportunity lies in the better stewardship of the revenue that we get. That focus on efficient and effective that's buried there in the middle of the six domains of quality is the key to the way out of the woods. And I really think that the natural tendency of most physicians is to be problem solvers. We're heuristic by nature. And when you finally clarify the circumstance focus and we get ourselves focused on what it is that needs to be done, set our own concerns behind the concerns of the community and our patients and say, okay, the best way to take care of ourselves is to get back to the traditional role of taking care of those people who seek care from us, then in fact we will see improvement. I I, I think people are beginning to connect some of those dots. But, you know, then again, maybe I'm just Pollyanna. <laughs> Actually, it's it's a powerful, if not simplistic, vision uh, that it's time for the janitor to come in and start doing the cleanup. There you so go. I position. love your, your intro song. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you so much for your I've time. I've enjoyed the conversation, Greg. And yeah. we've just scratched the surface. So I, I, perhaps we get you back in the not-too-distant future I love go it. a little love further. It. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, so uh, thank you again, Dr. Eugene Lindsay, President and CEO of Atrius Health, and uh, for his time and insights Call today. Call me Gene. Nobody and, uh, called me Eugene. <laughs> okay, Gene. Thanks, thanks, thanks for the invitation. And uh, we'll close out now and just shout out that you can't talk about innovation and integrative care in some kind of development milestone and not hear Kaiser or Mayo and so forth. So add to that Atrius and Dr. Ebert and the uh, Harvard Community Health Plan because therein lies the secret sauce of how this thing is going to work. So take a look in the mirror, ask yourself, am I part of the problem? If I'm, Am I part of the solution? And if not, make no mistake, you are part of the problem. Thanks again, Gene, and I hope you all enjoyed the show today, and we'll do this again next week, another edition of ACO Watch, a midweek review. Bye now. Bye-bye.
doors to let me in. The shattered windows in the sand. 